Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with two clinicians who specialize in treating maternal mental health, therapist Allison Lieberman and psychiatrist Dr. Brittany Booth. Allison Lieberman is a licensed marriage and family therapist certified in perinatal mental health and a mom of two. She's the co-founder of Rooted in Harmony Counseling, a virtual group counseling practice in California, and the host of the new Mama Mentor podcast. She is passionate about breaking the stigma around postpartum mental health and creating support for new moms. Dr. Brittany Booth is a general adult psychiatrist at Cal Psychiatry with experience treating a wide range of psychiatric disorders. Her areas of special interest include women's mental health, particularly perinatal and postpartum care, as well as mood disorders, anxiety, and OCD. She believes that a good relationship between a psychiatrist and patient is vital to the success of treatment and strives to provide a safe, honest, and supportive environment that facilitates partnership between herself and her patients. Today, we talk about the barriers to mental health treatment and how to maximize maternal mental wellness. Welcome, Allison and Brittany. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So... The discussion that we are going to have today is about barriers to care for expectant and postpartum moms, which are vast, (laughs) very. (laughs) So maybe we can just jump right into it. What are the barriers that you typically come across in your practice or see? I think for me in particular, there's like different categories of barriers. So like there's physical health barriers, there's like work barriers, and then there's like mental health barriers. So like in the context of this conversation, focusing on the mental health side, I think when we have pregnant moms come in, there's a lot of like either lack of education from other therapists or medication providers, or just like this fear around treating them in general, that they're going to like spark some traumatic response and something's going to happen with the baby. I think postpartum, it's sort of like everybody just says it's normal and it's not a big deal or they treat it as though it's just a regular anxiety or a regular depression. And there's no like nuance to that huge transition. And so they kind of just get pushed into that like general category and it creates this bigger gap in like what services they're getting and how specialized it really is and needs to be. I agree with all of that. I think the piece about postpartum experience being blanket described as difficult and tough for everybody and that if any mom is having any kind of negative feelings or is struggling in any way, it's brushed off just to say it's hard for everybody and you're just going to get past this or it's no different for you than it is for all the other moms. And then this just sort of societal expectation that we carry on ourselves that being a mom means struggling. For some women, it's even that if I'm not struggling, that means that I'm not going to be a good mom. And so there's a barrier to seeking care because there's the thought that I have to struggle in order to be a good mom. Right now, the discussion mainly is in the postpartum period the question to both of you as clinicians who work often with this time in a woman's life, when would you say it's time to think about treatment? And when would you say this is not a normal expected experience? 
if we eliminated the idea that insurance won't provide any reimbursement or payment for preventative services, (laughs) then I would say like prior to conception, if not during pregnancy would be the best, right? Like I kind of envision pregnancy as like your preparation for postpartum. There's a lot of things that come up in pregnancy that didn't come up before you were pregnant and will only heighten once you get into your postpartum experience. So like whenever I get a pregnant client, that's like, yeah, I think I want to work on this before the baby comes. I'm always like so excited (laughs) that someone is taking that extra step prior to this ginormous life change that we do not emphasize enough. Absolutely. And then in the postpartum, if they hadn't had that initiative or that thought to get it taken care of preventatively, and they find themselves in the postpartum and they're struggling, you know, up to 85 to 90% of women will experience postpartum blues. So that feeling of being on a roller coaster, kind of easy to cry, feeling kind of irritable or frustrated, especially with their partner, 85 to 90% of women will have that. And so it's never a bad idea to reach out for help and see, you know, hey, is this normal? Is this something that I need care for? So I'm never going to say, you know, don't reach out if you don't feel well. But when people really, really, really need to reach out is when their functioning, their ability to get through day-to-day life is compromised. If they're not able to get out of bed, if they're not able to actually care for themselves or their child because they're crippled by anxiety, they're crying uncontrollably. If they're having any kind of thoughts that they shouldn't be here anymore, they, you know, were they really meant to be a mother? Were they really meant to be a part of this family in this role? Would their kids be better off without them? Any thoughts like that? Now we're getting into postpartum depression, true postpartum depression. And you absolutely have to seek help for that. Yeah. And I almost feel like there's this sort of narrative to kind of what you were saying before, Brittany, which is like, we normalize this struggle so much in parenthood that it's sort of like, yeah, like it's normal to go from like a really hard postpartum to really hard time parenting toddlers and elementary and teens. And there's so much that could be like worked on through that, that by the time you get to the teen years, I mean, teen years are going to be hard no matter what, right? Like we're not necessarily saying that that's going to be easy, but like, your regulation of like what's going on inside of you, if you could start to work on that as early as possible, then that's great. That's going to improve your ability to manage each stage. And we're sort of missing this whole sort of time period that is really like so impactful for your child, right? That's the other big piece that I think is missing. And I've talked about this a lot in other areas, which is like the bond between mom and baby is so important. We know that, right? But what are we doing to really emphasize that other than just putting more pressure on the mom to force a connection, even if her mental health is impacting her ability to do that? And moms that I see and talk to often feel that it's the quantity of time that's spent with their baby that is most impactful for that attachment that they should be the one being caregiver 24-7. And if they ask for help, if they take a break, that attachment is going to be compromised. I was talking to somebody about this last week who was telling somebody that they were going to hire a night nurse because they know, this expendant mom knows, she is very impacted by lack of sleep, that she notices a significant difference in her mental health on days that she doesn't get a good night of sleep. And so she hired a, a night nurse for a couple of nights when she has her baby in a few weeks. and. 
this other person said, are you sure about that? That that could impact attachment, that there's so many beautiful moments that happen when you're feeding your baby in the middle of the night and you're falling asleep, cuddling and things like that. And we, we talked about that. We unpacked that a little bit and said, yes, there can be some really beautiful moments, you know, in those like sleepy moments in the middle of the night, there can be some really beautiful times, but those aren't the only times that attachment happens. And if you are terribly sleep deprived because you fired the night nurse and you are feeling horribly depressed and irritable and resentful during the day because you were up all night, that's going to be overall worse for attachment than if you'd hired the night nurse and you get a good night of sleep and maybe you'd miss out on those like sleepy 4am moments. But it's all about that balance. Yeah. As you were talking, Brittany, I was thinking about inherent in that conversation also is this expectation that every moment is a moment to develop attachment, right? And I'm thinking about these sleep deprived moms waking up to breastfeed. Not every moment is going to be pure joy. (laughs) She's waking up feeling very tired and just wanting the baby to be done with feeding so she can get back to sleep. Mm -hmm. And I think from a anxiety perspective, and I've talked about this a lot in my own experiences, like I would wake up with my kids and I would spend the entire time Googling every single thing that I could hyper fixating on. They made a weird noise. What's going on? Are they okay? Do I need to take them to the hospital? Like that's not attaching. Even if I'm there and my baby's eating and all that, like I'm emotionally checked out because I'm so focused on all the things going wrong. And so I think that it's sort of like that narrative around, oh, it could be this beautiful thing. Yeah, it could be if I'm not suffering in the meantime, right? But if one person's attaching, but the other person's suffering, that's not a safe attachment figure at that point, right? And so I think they call it like the magic 10 or whatever, where like you really make it a point to be intentional about 10 minutes every day where you're really focused on like a good, safe attachment with your kids could be enough to like help somebody learn that it's okay to ask for help the rest of the day. Maybe obviously not the entire day, but like there's elements where like, it's okay to take care of yourself because that's what makes the attachment better. Your example, Brittany, brings up this idea of societal expectations mm-hmm. of what it means to be a mother, the amount of time that you need to devote to motherhood and not maybe focusing on self-care. Absolutely. I see that all the time. And I'm always trying to bring that into my sessions and and being a voice. And I think it can be a powerful thing for providers to be the voice saying, you have to take care of yourself. It's okay to take care of yourself because people will see that message in other places. It can be, you know, on Instagram or from a friend or from some of these other sources that they might give some power and weight to, but I think it can be a really powerful thing as a mental health professional, as a medical provider to say, you have to take care of yourself. and that is going to be beneficial for your baby as well. That by taking care of yourself, you are actually being the best mother that you can be. And your baby is going to be better off for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Self-care is sort of like in this new bucket with like other terms like gaslighting and maybe some narcissism where people throw it on everything. Like if you just throw this term on there, then you've encompassed everything. And so I've sort of tried to move away from just the term self-care because I've noticed when I say it to my clients, they kind of just like 
turn their brain off. Like, okay, here's another person telling me that I need to do self-care, but like, what does that mean? Right. So I've sort of changed the language around it to taking time for yourself every day. Everybody needs to take time for themselves, whether it's five, 10 minutes or an hour or two hours. It's important to make that space because we all deserve space in our lives. And we want to teach our kids that they deserve space, right? We don't want to continue this narrative that moms don't deserve space because then our kids are going to take that on and then apply it to their own lives. I like. Ali, what you were saying that it's self-care is just becoming kind of an empty term. I totally agree. And I try and get really concrete mm-hmm. with my recommendations when I'm talking to people about this, asking them what they do that makes them feel better during the day. Like what are the things that actually do kind of fill their cup? And then bringing that back into the conversation and making those things recommendations. Like you have to make sure that you're taking a shower every day or whatever it is. If getting a manicure every other week is something that, you know, it's an hour that just really makes you feel better, go get a manicure. So I try and make my recommendations for my patients as specific as possible. Like you said, Allie, not just making it a blanket statement of self-care, but really the specific things that they do that make them feel better. Yeah. And you bring up this interesting point also in terms of if we're going to use the phrase taking time for yourself, that means different things. The amount needed is different depending on the individual, right? And so there's no like judgment of how much time that actually looks like or how much care or support someone needs. It it really just depends on the mother. Yeah. And their comfort level too, right? Like if you're coming from the perspective that no good mom takes time for themselves any time for yourself is going to be really uncomfortable. And we want it to be rewarding, not like a punishment, right? So I sort of start from like an exposure perspective of like, start with five minutes every day and just learn to sit in that five minutes that you've taken for yourself and start to try to enjoy that before trying to add more time onto it. Because if you're taking an hour, but you're spending that whole time feeling terrible, then you just wasted an hour And it's not worth it, right? But if you take five minutes and work on that, then you you could build up to an hour if that's what you want. I think about the idea of like maternal guilt, Mm -hmm. right? And how in postpartum depression cases, guilt is actually a very strong symptom that we typically see, right? And it leads to a lot of anxious rumination, a lot of self-hatred and self-judgment. And it's just so complex because it brings in kind of societal norms, familial norms, right? In terms of expectations, generational shifts in kind of mm-hmm. how different generations see motherhood and the amount of time that mothers should spend with their children. Absolutely. Yeah. I also uh, think to your point, generationally, like when we look at like access to care, care. A lot of doctors that are still very much in the field, whether it's OBs or psychiatrists, are those older generations, right? We have these newer generations coming in, but not as heavily as the older generations have been present. And so we get a lot of, at least in my experience, like I get a lot of feedback from just put the baby down. Like it's not that hard, just put the baby down, right? And you're like, oh, like that is so not this like new wave of medical advice and help, right? And so it's hard when you have that generational shift in parenting, but you also have that in the medical field coming into that parenting experience. 
and generally generationally too, you know, it used to be commonplace that children were raised in community, in multi-generational homes and families. That was just the norm that women had support from other members of their family in the community. And then it's just in the last several decades that the family unit or the nuclear family unit, where it's just mom, dad, and kids by themselves in that home has become the norm. And so women who are becoming moms now see that as the expectation that that's how it's been done and that they're on their own and they should be able to do it on their own, that that's how motherhood is. But ignoring the historical context of that, that's that for centuries, for millennia. That's not how it's been done. That the idea that moms are doing it on their own while dad goes off to work sometimes. I mean, you can get into the whole patriarchal societal <laughs> expectations another time. But just the fact that, you know, this one little family is supposed to do it all on their own is new and actually not very helpful. You know, I see this all the time in my practice that new moms who have more of that village that have family around, even if it's not family, even if it's if they're lucky to have doula support or night nurse support or friends, just other people around them who are helping to chip in to make a dish for dinner, do some laundry, take the baby for an hour. They do a lot better than people who are trying to do it all on their own or who unfortunately have to do it all on their own because they don't have either family around them or financial means to hire people to be around them to help with that. Totally. I think the the idea of asking for help is huge in pregnancy for sure and new motherhood in that like I know that like I grew up with a mom that did everything and so the perspective for me was like don't ask for help cuz like she didn't need help and she was fine, right? So like that narrative was sort of perpetuated but it kind of goes into that village of like, well, I can't ask my friends and family for help because they might judge me because I can't do it on my own. And then on the provider end is like having to ask for help because I'm struggling or I'm anxious or I'm not as happy as I thought I was going to be. There was this clip I saw yesterday. Andy Samberg was talking about how like when his wife was pregnant, but when you're getting ready to have kids, everybody's like, it's so beautiful. You're so lucky. It's going to be so great. He's like, and then you have a baby and everybody's like, ha ha, doesn't it suck? And he's like, it's like this total shift of like, people are trying to manipulate you into being a parent by telling you it's so wonderful. And then you get there and they're like, yeah, it sucks. Welcome. And it's like this really like dichotomous message that we're getting. Right. And so it's like, oh, well, I asked for this, so I shouldn't need help because I put myself in this situation. And then when they go to providers, especially ones that aren't as informed about perinatal mental health in general, they get this like response that isn't warm and comforting and understanding. And then it's sort of turns off that ability to ask for more help. I think we see that really pronounced in psychiatry when it comes to medication management during pregnancy and postpartum. Women can get a lot of really, really mixed messages from their medical providers about what is safe to take in pregnancy, what's not safe to take in pregnancy. If pregnancy itself is protective for mental health versus vulnerable for mental health, there is data out there to help us guide these recommendations. But 
I think a lot of medical professionals are coming from a medical tradition and a medical culture, not necessarily the data. And that's a huge gap in maternal mental health care that I see. I literally just had a patient who I saw for the first time for reproductive psychiatry consult who had been seeing another psychiatrist for three years and has had two pregnancies in that time and was told by her psychiatrist that pregnancy is a protective time. It's the healthiest thing that you could do for your mental health. She has a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, we should mention, and that she should not be on any medications at all during the pregnancy and and that she, she should be weaned off as soon as she becomes pregnant. And she's had some really rough pregnancies and postpartum situations. And so this is something that I think is a huge gap in our community knowledge and our community recommendations. And I can go even further into, you know, medical training. Again, a conversation for a whole separate time. Well, also to your point, let's like play in the delusion for a second that pregnancy is a protective factor for mental health, which is already misinformed information. But especially with a bipolar diagnosis, I cannot tell you how many people I have heard say that in their childbirth experience, they're in labor, they're given a medication that triggers a manic episode for them, right? And then there's no one to help ground them, right? The OBs aren't trained in psychiatry, so they don't really have a sense of what they're supposed to do and what's going to cause this and what isn't. They should. There should be some connection there, right? So that's a gap in that help, right? But there's also like, oh yeah, like I think I had someone maybe six months ago that that happened and she was calling the police on herself because she was so scared, right? And then you're like, where is the support there? Because this person had a psychiatrist, this person had an OB, this person had a therapist. Why aren't all these people connected to make sure that this person's getting the best support that they can, especially with a bipolar diagnosis, right? Like that is somebody that we can support and we should be supporting. And for whatever reason, we have this ginormous gap and it feels daunting to close it. Well, I think thinking about from a provider's perspective, not every mental health or medical provider, well, with the exception of ob and should specialize in reproductive mental health, but uh-huh. I mean, maybe more on the mental health treatment side. There's a lot of therapists, there's a lot of psychologists, a lot of psychiatrists who just don't work with that very often. And as a result, just yeah. don't feel comfortable and maybe don't know all the data and information and how to counsel patients. And so I think, Brittany, a lot of what you do is actually see patients who have been followed by a psychiatrist for many years, and maybe the psychiatrist understands that this is just not their specialty. That is not where they feel comfortable in terms of treatment. Absolutely. I think there's a difference, though, between understanding that lack of knowledge within ourselves and recognizing, you know, like that's not my area of specialty or, you know, I'm not as up to date with the data on that particular subject and either referring to somebody who is more up to date versus saying, it's not my specialty, but I'm going to do it anyway. Right. And do it, you know, just do it my way. And it had real, real consequences for this person. You know, this person ended up going on to have a second episode of postpartum psychosis and has had CPS called on her twice, not because she actually was putting her kids in danger, but just the fact that she had postpartum psychosis, that 
she came into contact with medical professionals to seek help for it and had CPS called on her. Thankfully, you know, the cases were closed. There was no, you know, devastating consequences from it. But after her first episode, you know, Josephine, like you were saying, there could have been an acceptance of this is not my specialty, but there are people who do specialize in it. There was just a continuation of the care and then a second episode later on when it potentially could have been mitigated. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too, because I know Brittany and I have talked about this before, but there is not a lot of psychiatric providers that specialize in this. They exist, but there aren't very many, especially not that take insurance. Right. And so when you're looking at access to care, of course, there's a gap there. But one, there's, of course, setting our egos aside and being like, this is outside of my scope, even though could I treat you? Of course, like it would be not in either one of our best interests for me to do that. That takes a lot in every person, right? And I think in therapy, there's an oversaturation in our market. There's tons of therapists and there's lots of therapists that specialize in this. And we could easily be referring out and a lot of them aren't, right? They're like, yeah, I could take that on. Like, I had a baby or I know about women's health, so I can help you. And there's that ego side where we just can't say, that's just not me, right? And on the psychiatry side, I feel like there's not an oversaturation. And so some people are just like, well, this person can help me and it's affordable, which of course makes sense. And it's a privilege to be able to say, like, I'm going to pay out of pocket for this. But what I tend to emphasize, especially with the clients that have been to multiple psychiatrists and aren't getting the help is like, I know it's an expense and it feels astronomical in terms of what you're going through, but like, it's worth the expense to get the right care. That's going to be able to pull you across that finish line. Right. Cause we don't have to have medication, but sometimes it really can help. And in some cases that is what you need to get over that hump, to actually work through the stuff that you need to work through. And I think that that is just like another area, aside from the OBGYN not having <laughs> the knowledge around the psychiatric side, which I do think is really important. Like it's hard to find that balance of who's available and who's knowledgeable that can also prescribe medications that isn't going to cause more of a detriment than help. I think you bring up a really good point about insurance versus out-of-network care and the barrier that that is for a lot of people. And there's just no way around that. I mean, it's it's a comment on the entire U.S. healthcare system and how providers are reimbursed or, you know, how terribly they're reimbursed. And that's why, you know, so many don't take insurance, but it does provide a, a huge barrier to patients. And I totally agree with how you counsel patients about that, that it is an investment. It's a cost, but it is an investment in their mental health care. And I also think about how that affects them financially in the long term, that if you make an initial investment into care that is actually going to help get you better more quickly, that that can be money saving over the long term because you might find that you need fewer follow-up visits or fewer you know, frequent follow-up visits. Like, yes, you might be seeing your out-of-network psychiatrist, but if you can get stabilized pretty quickly with someone who knows what they're doing and is getting you on the right meds and and tailoring it to you, then you can go for follow-ups every few months versus needing to still go every single month and pay co-pays or pay, you know, those cost-sharing fees, even if you are using insurance. And you're probably going to be more able to get back to work and functioning the way that you are. And there's so many other financial considerations other than just the cost of the appointment itself. Right. 
And it's hard, right? Because when you're in that sort of crisis state and you're like, I just need help. You're also like, but I also need to afford the help. And so the rationale isn't long-term. You're very much thinking short-term. And what we're asking is that people think long-term, like over the next year, is your investment going to be higher? Sure. But over your lifetime, maybe not. And so if you could get stabilized, then great. That's what we want. But to get there sometimes is really hard, especially, you know, those first six months, I feel like are like really big. Right. But the people that do okay during those first six months, I find when they come to therapy in the last six months of that postpartum phase, they're almost more distraught, right? Like there was this sense of hope that they were going to make it through postpartum unscathed, but then now they haven't. And it's like, now I don't know what to do. And everything is sort of crumbling. Right. So like, even if you look at it in like a six month time span of like, this is what I'm investing in, it may be worth it in the long run. I mean, I think big picture, this idea of in general, regardless of what the roadblock is to getting care, whether that's financial, whether that's just stigma around just getting mental health care, or even acknowledging that there's something going on. This idea, I love that what you brought up, Ali, is this idea of like short-term versus long-term. And I guess that maybe this idea that it's in the short term, it's hard to get care. There's so many barriers is really why we're talking about these barriers today, but you have to think about the long run of terms of like, but getting that care, how will that benefit you in the long run? Right. Like you said, if you're in the middle of stress, anxiety, a depressive episode, it's so hard to understand the interventions you make now and how that can actually make a huge impact for your future self and future family and future life. Yeah. And I think like our medical system in regards to like the insurance companies, we lump together physical and mental health together, right? Like all of those are sort of in the same bucket of like taking care of yourself, but they're so different. How you approach them is very different. How you work through them is very different. Like they're very different things. But when we're looking at it, it's hard to look at our physical health as a short-term thing, right? Like anything that we put into our body and what we do with our body and all of that. And it's the same with your brain in a way, but it's very different in how you approach it and what your access is. And so I think part of that stigma is like separating those two things and understanding that like they go together, they have to work together, but they're also very separate entities that can be approached very differently. Well, I want to be mindful of the time. I think some of us have to get to patients or all of us have to get to patients. I mean, sorry for the abrupt ending, but I feel like we are maybe kind of ending on, I think that a good like note of summary of of what we're talking about, but before we say goodbye, any kind of last thoughts you want to leave the listener with? Oh, I feel like that's a big question right now. (laughs) I know that's probably like I'm putting you on the spot. (laughs) I think just to build off of what we were just saying about short-term and long-term that when you're a new mom, everything is short-term. Like you're working in, you know, especially in the immediate postpartum, you're working in like three hour time chunks, like feeding, diaper change, nap, rinse and repeat. Everything is so short term and that it is so important if you are struggling in that time to really take a step back and think, how do I want to be feeling tomorrow, next week, next month, when my kid turns a year to really try and take that more macro perspective and to actually just Take that little bit of time to try and find someone who can help you. 
Yeah, I think sort of just piggybacking off of that is like understanding that like this is a specialty. It is not something that just anybody can treat just because they have a degree in what it's supposed to be. And so I really love like Postpartum Support International. They have coordinators that will connect you with somebody that you need to be connected with. And like it is a resource that's available that makes it a little less overwhelming to find someone that can actually meet that specific need. Yeah, I like that. We'll try to put that website as a link on the episode description so the listener can think about it. One more thought I wanted to share. I love the idea of like short-term versus long-term perspective. And I, I just this idea of when I was a mother with young children, this idea of like, you could not imagine the future. You were so focused on the moment at hand and how much you have to do. And it's just almost impossible to think about because you can't imagine being in a different state because you're so focused on taking care of this young, young being. But I think it comes with perspective too. this idea of like, you get out of that children grow up and their needs change. And I think I just thinking about it, it's just so hard as a new mom to think in the long term. It really is. Totally. So it's hard. It's challenge. I often reflect back to my postpartum time and how anxious I was. And my kids are toddlers and up now. So like I'm out of that time frame. And I sometimes think about like, oh my gosh, I never thought I was going to get out of that place. Like it was so all encompassing. Like I was just like there and nothing else exists except for this anxiety. And now, like there's different anxieties for sure, but it's just not that overwhelm of like this vast life ahead of you, but also everything is happening right now. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be so hard. No, <laughs> It's also what we talked about, like with Brittany talking about the community and the lack of community that a lot of new moms have this idea of like, it doesn't always have to be such a struggle. Mm-hmm. I always tell my clients I have a hard time asking for help. I say, you can do it by yourself. No one's stopping you. You can do it, but you don't have to. So like, think about that. Like, you don't have to suffer in this. You can ask for help and it's okay. Even though like, we will acknowledge that you can do it by yourself. You're not winning an award for doing it by yourself. And so don't go into it with that mindset. And that the struggle isn't what makes you a good mother. Totally. Well, I think that's a great place to end. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all for being here and for sharing your expertise. And I hope this reaches some new moms or not so new moms and maybe helps them think about some of these things. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.